Okay. Right. I seem to have sound. I seem to have vision. When I was in Japan in 2002, there was, uh, uh, I stayed at the International House, and they had a nice little dispenser of uh, food and drink, and one of the things they sold was Sprite, only they'd misspelt it as Spite. So um, as I, every, every morning before I went to breakfast, I took my dose of Spite. You know, it sets a man up for the day. Anyway, so I'm going to leave this here for you, Carl. Um, uh, this is Carl Friday, our speaker for today. This is the second presentation in the series Loving Battle by Carl Friday, who's professor of history at the University of Georgia. He has a, a first degree from uh, University of Kansas, his MA in East Asian Languages and Cultures from Kansas, and a PhD from Stanford. Uh, he teaches at the University of Georgia in Athens. His most famous book is, well, one of his famous books is Hired Swords, The Rise of Private Warrior Power in Early Japan, published by Stanford in 92, reprinted in 95, paperback 96. His most recent book, Samurai Warfare and the State in Early Medieval Japan, and a host of articles and presentations with interesting titles, such as Teeth and Claws, colon, Provincial Warriors and the Heian Court, Bullshido, excuse me, Bushido or Bullshit, question mark, a medieval historian's perspective on the Pacific War and the Japanese military tradition, What a Difference a Bow Makes, Chivalry and the Early Japanese Warrior Ethic in Comparative Perspective, and today another catchy title in the Company of Wolves, Samurai and the Social Order in Early Medieval Japan. Carl Friday. <laughs> I can organize this in a way that I can see it without knocking it off the podium here. Uh, well, thank you very much for bringing me up here. I'd, uh, let me start with that and start off with a, an anecdote, the point of which will become clear in a minute, I hope. Uh, a few years ago, I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine and I. We were wandering through souvenir shops in, in Tokyo, and we came across a coffee cup similar to that. It wasn't exactly the same coffee cup, but a ninja coffee cup. And being in kind of a silly mood, my friend pointed out that this is really stupid. No real ninja would ever have a coffee cup that says ninja on it because you'd give yourself away. At which point I said, well, but, you know, a really clever ninja might realize that, that anybody would think that no real ninja would have a coffee cup that says ninja on it and therefore be hiding in plain sight. At which point he said, yes, but a really clever ninja would know that he would that people would expect a very clever ninja to know that no real ninja would have a coffee cup. At which point I said, yeah, but unless he wanted his enemies to believe that you would believe, that he would believe, that they would believe. Well, anyway, that conversation went on like that for about 10 minutes. Um, the reason I bring it up is because the thrust of my argument today uh, reminds me a little bit of that kind of conversation, uh, particularly with regard to the, uh, the central question that uh, Professor Parker asked me to address, which is to say, does maintaining uh, cadres of professional killers enhance or threaten a society's uh, overall security? Uh, or in the context of the title for the, uh, the lecture here today, were the early samurai guard dogs or uh, wolves amidst the fold? Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to be doing a better job of laying out food for thought and, and relevant points for consideration than I am of actually providing an answer to that question. Because the truth of the matter is that the Japanese case can probably be used, in fact, not probably, can be used, to argue either side of, of Professor Parker's question here. 
uh, from the beginning of their history at the Samurai were very much at once a source of and a solution to threats to the public order. So in any case, uh, I want to begin today with this question of whether the Japanese case indicates that maintaining cadres of professional killers um, enhances or threatens the society's overall security. But I also want to spend some time addressing uh, some of the other thematic questions that Professor Parker raised for the seminar series, uh, particularly concerning uh, connections and divisions between uh, a warrior's understanding of, uh, of fighting and the state's conceptions of war uh, and samurai attitudes toward violence and killing. Uh, the, uh, the hand state system uh, in which the samurai played an absolutely essential part provided Japan with about four centuries of stability from the 9th to the 12th centuries. Uh, the samurai functioned for almost three full centuries as the, uh, the, the teeth and claws, this is a phrase right out of Japanese documents, of the imperial court and of the civil uh, noble houses that comprised it, which is to say that uh, absolutely, on the surface of things at least, samurai did not destabilize society or threaten its overall security, at, le at least not immediately. Um, well, I obviously don't have time today for a detailed account of the origins of the samurai, although I can recommend a good book on that topic. Uh, but I, I do want to do a quick, a kind of quickie su summary here. Um, around the turn of the 8th century, which is really where the story begins, uh, the uh, newly restyled imperial house and its supporters uh, cemented their position at the top of the political and social hierarchy with the uh, promulgation of a fairly elaborate battery of new government institutions. Uh, these were modeled primarily on the institutions of Tang China. Uh, they included a number of provisions, not surprisingly, for domestic law enforcement and foreign defense. Contrary to popular belief and, and the kind of treatment you tend to see in textbooks on this, uh, these institutions were not simply adopted wholesale from China. They were very carefully adapted to meet Japanese needs. The problem, though, was that the various goals and uh, requirements of the state were often in conflict with one another. And the result then was that the imperial state military apparatus incorporated a number of rather unhappy compromises. And then problems that were inherent in the system at its inception were made worse by changing conditions. Uh, by the mid-700s, then, the court was reevaluating its uh, martial needs and restructuring its armed forces. Uh, this is a series, a long uh, century-and-a-half series of adjustments and amendments and general reforms, a lot of tinkering and experimenting. Uh, they finally achieved a, a workable and relatively stable system somewhere around the late 10th century. Uh, the most important part of all of this experimenting and adjusting, though, was an amplification of the role of elites in the new military establishment. That is, members of the upper tiers of provincial society and the lower and middle tiers of, of, of court society. Uh, the government, in a nutshell here, uh, ceased trying to uh, drill and or draft and drill the population at large, uh, which was a cardinal principle of, of the Ritsuryo military system, the, the imperial state military system. Everybody serves. Uh, military obligations were part of your tax obligations. Instead, it concentrated on co-opting privately acquired skills, uh, uh, the, uh, specifically the skills of, of, of elites, martially talented elites. Uh, it did this through a series of uh, new military posts and titles that effectively deputized or legitimized uh, the, uh, the use of personal martial resources belonging to uh, the members of this group on behalf of the state. 
In essence, then, what we're talking about here is moving from a conscripted, publicly trained, uh, publicly managed military force to one uh, that was composed primarily of privately trained, privately equipped, privately organized professional mercenaries. The result, then, over time was the emergence of an order of professional fighting men in the countryside that we call the samurai, or, or probably a little bit more accurately for this period, the bushi. Uh, this new or warrior order then was emerging rather rapidly during the 9th and 10th century, and certainly in place by the middle of the 10th. Uh, the key point here, though, to keep in mind is that samurai represented a growth within the system. Uh, and for the most part, were supportive of the system. Samurai were kept competing against one another for titles uh, of various sorts, including the titles that, in fact, authorized them to act as samurai, that permitted them to uh, exercise armed force, as well as for the rewards that came from military service. Uh, whenever powerful warriors appeared and presented uh, challenges or even potential challenges to central government control, there were always rivals who could be co-opted and uh, persuaded that cooperation with the state was a, a surer path to success than, uh, than signing on with the rebels. In fact, uh, I'm, my current project involves Samurai rebellions during the, the period, and uh, a careful look even at these major insurrections shows that even the so-called rebels maintain very, very close ties to the overall political structure and to the center, uh, both institutionally and temperamentally. Uh, samurai were simply not becoming more and more independent of the court as the Heian period went on, uh, not even in military affairs. In fact, they weren't even seeking the sort of independence. Japan, during the Heian period, remained very firmly under a civil authority. The uh, socioeconomic hierarchy still culminated absolutely in a civil, not a military nobility, uh, and warrior leaders during the period generally saw pro the profession of arms basically as a means to an end, uh, a foot in the door towards civil rank and office, not as, as a, an end in and of itself. Um, Having said that, the flip side of the equation here is that the samurai were also a key component of a controlled but essentially omnipresent violence and threats thereof uh, that was very much part and parcel of the economic and political system. Uh, they were used not just to enforce the law as police and, and, and soldiers, but also uh, to collect, well, actually extort is probably the right word here, uh, taxes and such, uh, and to advance the personal interests of provincial elites and uh, central nobles. So in one sense, uh, Professor Parker's question really asks us to uh, weigh the, uh, the overall security and stability of the system, probably with a capital S there, against uh, this undercurrent of grassroots violence and threats of violence that, that were there to sustain the system. Uh, so what are we talking about here? Well, a period of, of fairly expansive socio-political change um, between the 9th and, and, and 12th centuries. At the heart of these developments was a phenomenon that is usually characterized as uh, privatization of the workings of government, probably more accurately described as a blurring of the lines between what constitutes private and, uh, and public uh, uh, authority and such, between the public and, and private persona of those who carry out the uh, affairs of governance. Uh, what's going on essentially is that during the Heian period, the identity between hereditary status and office holding, which was a key feature of the imperial state system right from the beginning, uh, was becoming deeper and more rigidly defined. And uh, as this was happening, key government functions were beginning to be performed through personal rather than public channels, essentially uh, the equivalent of, of instead of going to the state treasurer to, to, to prepare the budget, you have your private accountant do it for you because, after all, 
ultimately it's my risk, my signature that goes on and it doesn't matter whether I do this publicly or privately. So what this did is have the effect of essentially rendering public and private rights and responsibilities more and more difficult to distinguish. The on-paper distinction remains, but the, but the, the practical distinction becomes almost moot. Uh, and then from the ninth century onward, court and society and the operations of government were increasingly dominated by uh, rather powerful familial interest groups. These were headed by senior courtiers who established complex uh, networks of vertical alliances with the uh, lower and, uh, and middle rank nobles and also with figures out in the countryside. Uh, well, this sort of intense uh, privatization and intense political competition then at court made control of military resources of uh, one sort or another an invaluable tool. There are very few dramatic or large-scale examples of recourse to arms in the name of politics during the Heian period. But attempts at uh, assassination and, and intimidation are, are, were, were rather fairly common. Uh, the efforts on the part of these court great families to establish uh, private military forces and to uh, press for control of, of state military resources and such uh, were an ongoing phenomenon from the very beginning of the imperial state system. In other words, they, uh, they were not really a response to the existence of the samurai or to, or to the appearance of this privatized military system. Uh, but as the system evolved, the uh, top courtiers would vie with one another to recruit men with uh, military skills into the ranks of their household service uh, and also to staff the officerships of public military units with their own kinsmen and, and clients and followers. Uh, as this is going on, there are also some rather dramatic changes taking place between in the fundamental relationship between uh, the court and the countryside. The, in the public sphere, these signal the, the, the most important changes really revolved around the tax system. Uh, it was amended to make tax collection not a problem between the government and individual subjects as it had been on paper under the, the Dizio system, but rather uh, one between the central and central government and provincial governments. Uh, revenue quotas were set province by province, and provincial governors then were made accountable for seeing to it that the quotas were met, uh, as well as for making up shortfalls. Uh, required to do this out of their own pockets if, if necessary. The means by which uh, taxes were actually collected then were left largely to the discretion of, of governors and their staffs. Uh, and governors then tended to delegate most of the burden to local elites who were charged with assembling the same sort of tax quota from their own uh, uh, specific locales in which they had uh, influence. Uh, While well, local elites, of course, welcomed and encouraged these kind of policy measures because they provided opportunities for increasing their personal wealth and power. Uh, this was a new, the new tax structure really worked out pretty well for everyone. It was lucrative for everyone involved. It turned provincial officials and also local officials and, and land managers alike uh, into tax farmers. Uh, they uh, made their careers and, and their fortunes by collecting revenues beyond their assigned quotas and then pocketing the difference. So that by the middle of the hand period, the provinces have become a forum for competition uh, for wealth and influence between three important groups, uh, provincial resident elites, uh, provincial government officers, and uh, the uh, uh, great powers of the court. Well, against that backdrop, then, we're finding that some residents of the provinces were discovering that service to the court or service to court families was not the only outlet for uh, uh, using martial skills to advance their personal interests. Uh, by the ninth century, we're seeing a significant amount of banditry uh, uh, on the part of, of uh, uh, of course, by martially talented people, um, either as an addition to or as an alternative to public service. Most often, it's as an addition to. It's the same groups who are actually uh, uh, same individuals who are supposed to be um, keeping the peace or also breaking it. 
in response then, provincial governors began to include, uh, this is a neat phrase, warriors of ability. It shows up in a lot of documents. Uh, among the, uh, the personal entourages that accompanied them to their provinces of appointments. Uh, this was sparked in part by a need to defend themselves and their prerogatives against outlawry and, and, uh, and armed resistance, uh, but also in part by a desire to maximize the profits that could be uh, squeezed out of, of taxpayers. And a substantial number of these uh, of career provincial governors were also militarizing themselves, taking up arms for themselves. One of the better uh, glimpses that we have of the use of violence uh, as an administrative as opposed to a police tool of government is a series of petitions complaining about abuses by provincial governors. Uh, these were filed by provincial elites. Uh, they style themselves the district officials and peasants of such and such province. We have about 18 of these provinces that we know about, uh, filed between 971 and 1041 uh, from 12 different provinces. Six of these resulted in the provincial governor being fired when the court looked them over. The best known of these is from Owari province in, in south-central Japan, written in 988. It was written in 38 articles. You see parts of two of them up there. It complains basically about the depredations of the provincial governor, Fujiwara Motonaga. Uh, Motonaga, in fact, was one of the six officers who was fired as a result of the petition. Uh, as you can see, I don't need to read this, I don't think, to you, but uh, the two articles here, 14 and 27, uh, it's wonderful in terms of, of the color and hyperbole that goes into, uh, into these descriptions. And it clearly shows how routine the use of violence and threats was as, as, as a basic tool of, of, of provincial governance. But, and this is the big but here, uh, the, uh, I think the Owadi document is really most interesting for what it doesn't say and what you don't see in it. You don't see here any really large-scale violence. Uh, you do not see samurai running amok on their own. They are, are working on behalf of a higher authority. They're hired thugs. They're not uh, a power in, uh, in their own right. Uh, and even the most serious of these complaints are relatively mild. Uh, provincial residents are clearly, I mean, if you, if you allow some room for the hyperbole and such, uh, are really expressing a great deal of outrage over what are pretty small potatoes abuses and, 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 uh, and strong-arm tactics on the part of the governor. Uh, for the most part, kidnappings and, and forced uh, in, uh, in labor impressments of, of individuals and stuff, forced confiscations of, uh, of property and that sort of thing. And they clearly expected the court to be outraged by this sort of thing as well. And in fact, the court was outraged by this sort of thing. After all, they fired Multanaga and six of the other governors. We also have to keep in mind when you're evaluating this sort of thing, a sort of, the sort of chicken and egg phenomenon. Uh, samurai were coming into existence because government officials like Motonaga wanted men to use for these sorts of functions. Uh, the existence of the samurai was not the cause of these sort of, of so-called depredations. In fact, it was the, the, the activities that was the raison d'etre uh, for the bushi in the first place. Um, a second consideration, though, uh, on this main issue uh, is that samurai, of course, did eventually take over. Uh, this was a process that began near the end of the 12th century, uh, in which warriors gradually wrested control of the country, or control of Japan's lands and, and, uh, and peoples, from the court, and then ruled the country for the next four centuries. It was essentially a process of disintegration and, de and decay of the public order, uh, uh, one of geometrically expanding violence over the course of centuries, in which the rule of law gradually gave way to a kind of Darwinian survival of the strongest. So let's take a look at this in a little bit, uh, a little bit more closely. 
a couple of important points on this. Um, the process began in earnest in 1180 when a warrior by the name of uh, Minamoto Yoritomo, who happened to be the son of a, a prominent um, career provincial uh, bureaucrat or provincial governor who was also a warrior, found himself exiled at the age of 13 uh, as the result of, of his father's screw-ups in, in a major incident in 1160. So Poirier then was, in fact, deprived of the career path that should have been his otherwise uh, by right of patrimony. Uh, he was locked out of the system, in, in effect, and therefore unable to advance himself by traditional means. And so instead, he hit on a rather ingenious uh, idea for reclaiming what should have been his destiny and what he saw as sort of his rightful destiny. Um, he seized on the cause of a frustrated claimant to the imperial throne by the name of, of, of Mochihito and used uh, Mochihito's cause as a pretext to issue a call to arms under himself. And he did this in such a way as to initiate a rather artful end run around the, uh, uh, the status quo that existed in the governing and landholding system of the time. Uh, what he did was announce that he personally was assuming jurisdiction over the entire East and all, over all lands and government offices in the East, uh, and further declared that in exchange for an oath of allegiance to himself and, and a promise to fight in, uh, on his behalf, uh, he, that is Yoritomo, would assume uh, the role of the court in guaranteeing whatever lands and administrative rights an enlisting vassal considered to be rightfully his own. The result then was a, ground uh, a groundswell of support for him. He touched off a series of nationwide feuds and civil wars, all subsumed under the rubric of Yoritomo's crusade, ostensibly on behalf of, of uh, Mochihito's cause. Of course, Mochihito was dead within the first couple of months of, of this, but that didn't stop him from continuing to wave the, the banner. This is the big picture conflict that the historians call the Genpei War, but it really isn't what, what the war was about. Um, in the event, of course, Yoritomo won. And so his fo he and his followers won not only the day, but a new world. Uh, Yoritomo established in the course of the fighting uh, a new institution that we call the shogunate. It was a kind of government within a government, simultaneously part of the, the, uh, the court in Kyoto and also distinct from it. Uh, most importantly, it held a special kind of authority over the land rights of the, the, uh, the, the particular subgroup of warriors who at this point were scattered all over the country that the, the shogunate recognized as its formal vassals, or gokenin. Well, over the next century and a half then, <coughs> the uh, gokenin took advantage of the special status that they had and manipulated the, the, in, the relative insulation from direct court control that uh, affiliation with the shogunate gave them, using it as, uh, as an excuse to, uh, uh, to lay increasingly stronger and more pervasive and more personal claims to lands that they were ostensibly administering uh, on behalf of the powers that were in the capital. This was a kind of ratcheting process of, uh, of advancement by or self-aggrandizement by fait accompli. Uh, but it resulted in, in the long run of warriors gradually freeing themselves from central authority entirely. By the second quarter of the, uh, uh, of the 14th century, uh, this evolution had progressed to the point where the more successful Gokanian were beginning to question affiliation with Kamakura. After all, you know, if, if uh, uh, when Yoritomo stands up and says, you don't need the court, you can, you can turn to me for authority, there's a point at which he's turned on and say, okay, that's true enough, but why do I need to turn to you? Why can't I be the authority myself? And this is exactly what happened. Um, the Kamakura regime fell in 1333. The proximate cause uh, was a series of events that, that began with an imperial succession dispute. It was replaced by a new shogunate, which spent the uh, first uh, uh, 60 years of its existence embroiled in a civil war between competing imperial courts, 
all of which then took an extremely heavy toll on imperial and centralized authority. Um, by the dawn of the 15th century, then, whatever remained of centralized power was in the hands of the shogunate, not the court. Uh, warriors dominated the countryside and the whole of the socio-economic and political structure of Japan by this point. But this wasn't the end of this devolutionary process. Power continued to spin off from the, from the capital into the countryside, real power depending more and more on pyramids of control and relationships that were built from the ground up uh, rather than, than authority delegated from the, from the top down. In the aftermath of the, uh, the famous Onin War of 1467-77, a big civil war that, that broke out in the, in the capital itself, uh, the country was in the control of a few score of uh, local hegemons that we call uh, daimyo. These are men who ruled their uh, domains uh, as virtually autonomous satrapies. Uh, the borders of these domains coincided with areas that the daimyo and the warriors uh, whose loyalties they commanded could dominate by force. Uh, well, this was the beginning then of about a century and a half of near continuous warfare and civil war between competing daimyo. Uh, the uh, uh, Japanese like to describe this in terms of the, the famous term here, Gekokujo, uh, the low overthrow, the high, constant churning and, and rise and fall of, of, of houses and, and domains. My favorite term is the second one here, Jakuniku Kyoshoku. This is less common, but, it, but it's much more colorful. The, the weak become meat, the strong eat. Uh, very much describes the atmosphere here. Well, okay, so what does all this mean? Clearly, the sequence of events that's touched off in 1180 would seem at least to argue that the samurai ultimately proved to be a major threat to the security of the Japanese state and society. In fact, obviously, something more than a threat. The issue is really not quite that clear-cut because there are at least two other points that need to be considered here. Uh, the first is that this warrior takeover process actually culminated not in this uh, chaotic might-makes-right world of the 16th century, but rather in the creation of a stable warrior-led polity uh, under the, uh, the Tokugawa regime, 250 years of peace, in fact, under the, the new Tokugawa polity that we call the, the early modern period in, in Japanese history. Uh, the second consideration here is that the process that led to the samurai takeover began in response to socio-political issues. That is to say, it was not in any way directly the result of samurai military culture or to the existence of a privatized military system. Uh, when he raised his standard in 1180, Yoritomo was primarily exploiting what had up until this point been quietly a smoldering intrafamilial and uh, an interclass frustration with the, the structure of the landholding and, uh, uh, and administrative rights systems in, in the provinces. This was based on a very rigidly structured hierarchy, topped and dominated by the courthouses and, and religious institutions in the capital, uh, a system that relegated provincial magnets to the status of land managers, collecting uh, taxes or rents and managing resources on behalf of the government or estate proprietors in the capital. Uh, now, warriors represented only a rather small subset of this provincial land managerial class in the first place. And the uh, warriors that Yoritomo recruited represented only a very small subset of warriors countrywide. Uh, the battle lines in, in the Genpei War were not really drawn between the Gem and the Pei, that is, between the, the, the Taita and Minamoto that the, that, that term implies. The real conflict here was between radicals and reactionaries. Uh, that is to say, those who were sufficiently dissatisfied 
with uh, their lot under the status quo to take an enormous gamble. We're willing to, uh, with basically people who are malcontent with the system, uh, and willing to take a big chance, signed on with Yoritomo. And those who were relatively content with their current situation or simply more conservative about their ideas, you know, Yoritomo's chances for success or their ideas about how to get ahead, uh, tended to fight on the other side on behalf of the the Taira. Uh, Which side was the government side? Which side was was the, the rebel side? Kind of switched back and forth several times over the course of the conflict. Another point here is that the process of uh, self-advancement by fait accompli that I alluded to here, uh, the process that allowed Kamakota vassals to gradually whittle away at and destroy central court uh, uh, prerogatives, um, centered on economic, that is to say land-holding issues. Again, not military issues. It was a kind of militarized or (coughs) military-backed civil disobedience, not really an assertion of, of military power in any meaningful sense. Of course, again, you have another hand here. Uh, the process did, of course, lead to rapid militarization of the provincial landowning class. Uh, up until the early 1200s, warriors were a very minority presence in this class. By the late 1200s, uh, the majority of this landholding or land managerial class are, are, are militarized, and they're now warriors. And, of course, the Genpei War that set the process off was made possible only because the, the landholders involved were, in fact, uh, warriors. Uh, and, of course, the fact that they were warriors also led to uh, increased uh, uh, frequency of small-scale violence in the countryside, a point I'll come back to in a minute, uh, once the status quo had been destabilized by uh, Yoritomo's machinations and initiations here. Um, okay, well, let me change directions for a minute, and we'll come back to, to some of this a little bit later. Um, the Japanese case does offer us a much clearer answer to the question that Professor Parker posed um, concerning connections and divisions between uh, uh, warriors' understanding of fighting and state conceptions of war. Uh, or as he posed it, what connects and what divides a warrior's understanding of fighting as a heroic individual pursuit and the state's conception of war as a uh, protective public policy? Um, the existence and the evolution of the samurai is clearly subversive in this regard. Japanese law posited a uh, dis- very clear, unambiguous distinction between, on the one hand, lawful public military action in which uh, one or more of the parties involved possessed a a legal warrant and unlawful private fights. Uh, This position is reflected uh, from the earliest uh, beginnings of the samurai to well into the 14th century uh, in edicts of the court and and of both of the first two shogunates. Uh, From the perspective of the law, that is, of the state as a corporate entity, Recourse to arms constituted just warfare. It was only acceptable when and only when it was sanctioned by the state in advance. You can't even uh, appeal uh, after the fact. The principle that final authority and formal control of all military affairs rested and should rest with the, uh, the central government was a key feature of Japan's military and police system from the late 7th century until well into the 14th century. The state very carefully and jealously guarded its exclusive right to, uh, to sanction the use of force throughout the Heian period and, and well into the Kamakura period and attempted to do so, although with, with considerably lessening success, under the, the, the second shogunate, the Muromachi regime as well. In fact, you can even find arguments citing this, this principle, the notion of, of legal and illegal wars, in uh, 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 reference to, to wars between Sengoku Daimyo, uh, even though there was, by this point, of course, no meaningful central authority, uh, samurai, or, or warriors in Japan, uh, Daimyo, were not giving up on, on at least the, 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 the concept. Uh, the uh, legal structure of, of Heian, and even 
medieval Japan really made no allowances whatsoever for the pursuit of private ends through violence. This contrasts rather dramatically, I think, with the case in Europe where uh, the feud was a, a sort of legal instrument. Uh, governments in Japan were increasingly forced to turn a blind eye to squabbles between samurai, but they never dropped at least the pretense that this sort of behavior was criminal. And this forced warriors then to attach uh, private disputes to public causes, as Yoritomo did, for example. Uh, Bushi took great pains to cloak their feuds and, and other private warfaring under the mantle of uh, service to the state in one fashion or another. Nevertheless, it's very clear that legalities notwithstanding, warriors did, in fact, engage in a lot of fighting outside the parameters of, uh, of state sanction. And it's also clear that they were doing this from the very beginning of their history. And more importantly, that they felt no uh, moral problems with doing this. They felt perfectly ethically and morally justified, in fact, in doing so. Um, one of the most important forms of private warfare during the Han period was the one I've already alluded to, the uh, uh, samurai involvement in uh, uh, the political intrigues of the upper aristocracy. Uh, and, of course, from a warrior point of view, from the samurai point of view, this sort of activity is not particularly far removed from uh, genuinely legal actions, that is, those uh, conducted in pursuit of warrants. Either way, the samurai himself was acting on orders from above. Uh, and, of course, with the, the blurring of, of the lines between public and private uh, rights and responsibilities with regard to all of these uh, various administrative functions probably meant that, that warriors shouldn't have been expected to and obviously didn't make any real practical distinctions between state orders and what were technically private orders from courtier patrons. But samurai were also involved in all sorts of other kinds of unsanctioned fighting. Uh, these are uh, fights that the government documents describe as private war, she sent. Uh, there are a number of, of reasons for this sort of fighting. They're ranging all the way from matters of personal or familial honor to overt attempts at self-aggrandizement by force, which usually didn't work very well, by the way. Uh, and you see an increasing frequency of this kind of activity as you move into the Kamakura and Motomachi periods. Uh, what we're seeing here is a proliferation of private warfare that I think is symptomatic of a fundamental change in long-term definitions, Japanese definitions, of what constitutes just war. Uh, they centered on the replacement of courtier values with those of the samurai themselves. Uh, courtier values fo uh, focused rather narrowly on central government sanction for fighting. Uh, samurai values broadly embraced the rights of warriors to fight on the personal authority of courtier or samurai patrons, as well as in defense uh, of or pursuit of matters of honor or even private profit. This new ethic then was nascent during the Heian period, but at that point, samurai remained politically constrained, at least enough so that they were obliged to, to continue to bow and pay deference to uh, courtier rules and, and definitions governing their rights to bear arms. But the Genpei Wars in 1180-85 then unleashed this uh, flood of widespread local violence, all conducted under the banner of this larger public war. And the Kamakura shogunate then that came out of this fighting found itself unable to completely control and curtail this sort of small-scale private conflict. After all, it depended for its existence as much on the backing of its own warrior vassals as on the credibility of its promises to the court that it would act as the peacekeeping agency and, and maintain the, uh, peace in the countryside. Uh, the situation became even muddier as you move into the 14th century when you get six decades or so of more or less constant civil war, all fueled by two competing centers of, of imperial legitimacy. Uh, the existence of rival imperial courts then made it impossible on any kind of practical level to distinguish public from private war because both courts claim to be issuing public calls to arms, which makes it possible to wrap almost any private fight in the banner of a large public war. And 
virtually impossible for either court to uh, uh, to restrain its warriors. You run the risk as soon as you say, no, no, you're not supposed to be doing that, of having uh, whoever you're, you're, you're saying that to defect to the other side. Well, 60 years then of... of uh, the, end of, well, the result of, of this was, in fact, the end of any meaningful distinctions in be, between public and private warfare and of the ability of central governments in Japan to assert the primacy of centrally dictated law uh, over warrior self-help. And 60 years of that kind of ambiguity then reified the custom of warrior self-help so that the shogunate found itself completely unable to recover control of the situation even after the era of the two courts ended in, in 1392. Uh, so clearly then, in the Japanese case, we see the emergence of a warrior order with its own ideas about what constituted ethical warfare uh, that were completely different from the states and one which over the long term rendered the state's views untenable uh, or at least unenforceable. Uh, well, the sexy question of the day, of course, here is uh, whether or not samurai were killers by occupation or by temperament. Or as Professor Parker puts it, do the killers just do it or do they enjoy killing? Um, the received wisdom here certainly argues that the early samurai, at least, were not gratuitous killers. Probably the single most famous and certainly the most popular story about early samurai personality is an episode um, in the famous uh, tale of the Heike, Heike Monogatari, uh, involving the death of the warrior Taira Atsumori at the death of Kumagai Naozane. Um, this is a story that gets recounted everywhere. It becomes the basis for no dramas and, and kabuki plays. Uh, some of you probably know it. I won't go into the whole story here, but in, in the short uh, uh, synopsis of it, uh, Naozane uh, uh, defeats a, a young warrior. Uh, he's about to, to finish him off, and then he suddenly realizes that he's dealing with, with a, 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 essentially a child, a teenager, uh, who's about the same age as his own son. He gets uh, overwhelmed by, uh, with emotion that, oh, this is awful. We can't, I shouldn't do this. He's about to spare him and then realizes that there's no way he can do that because the kid can't get away no matter what, at which point the... the, the, the the young warrior tearfully begs him to, no, please, I want to die by your hand. I can't get away anyway. So he's, uh, uh, Naozane's eyes swimming with tears, beheads the young warrior and, and uh, says, you know, better me than because I at least respect you than, than one of the others. Uh, and then he, he shaves his head and spends the rest of his life wandering about as a priest praying for uh, uh, Atsumori's salvation. Uh, again, this is the a very, very popular story. It shows up in almost every anthology of, of, of Japanese literature and it's recounted over and over again. And in fact, the popular and until recently most scholarly accounts of early warfare uh, would suggest that the, the, that sort of behavior is very much in character for, for medieval warriors and, and, uh, and Heian warriors. Uh, early battle, samurai battles are always described as set pieces conducted in accord with, with all sorts of, of, of quaint and gentlemanly norms and, and conventions. Uh, the problem is that that view came mainly out of a fairly superficial reading of a lot of late medieval war tales that were written hundreds of years after the fact, uh, particularly coming out of sections of the, these texts that literary scholars have long since demonstrated to be formulaic and, and much later additions to the story. In other words, from completely unreliable sources. Uh, closer and more careful analysis of sources, even these familiar ones, like, like the Heike Monogatari, uh, suggest a very, very different picture entirely. In fact, unless you look very hard for ritual combat, you simply won't find it in contemporaneous sources of warrior behavior. Uh, early samurai warfare, right from the beginning, was undeniably brutal. Uh, women and children and other non-combatants that were in the proximity of early medieval battles tended to be indiscriminately slaughtered right along with, the, with other warriors. Uh, raiding, 
which usually involved burning fields, plundering houses, and killing off the inhabitants of an opponent's lands, was an extremely common tactic. So, was, uh, so were sieges on enemy homes and strongholds, which usually involved surrounding the compound, setting fire to all the buildings, and then shooting anyone who tried to get out and, and away from the flames. Uh, women who somehow or other managed to survive raids and sieges and other sorts of battles. Even women of status, such as uh, the wives and daughters of enemy officers and such, uh, were regularly handed over to victorious troops to be robbed of their clothing and or raped. And those who wish to avoid this fate, you sometimes see committing suicide and such. Um, in the rare instances where you do find samurai actually taking care to make a distinction between combatants and non-combatants, there were very, there always, the sources always give you, spell out very clear reasons, very specific reasons why this particular person was spared instead of just handed over. Uh, warriors clearly killed without remorse or at least they were believed to do so by their contemporaries. And this is a key problem, of course, when you're looking at warriors in this period. We don't have sources by warriors themselves, but we have uh, reflections of them in, uh, in uh, literature and in documents that are written by courtiers. Uh, but that still tells us a lot. Uh, on or off the battlefield, warriors are depicted in these sources as having very little concern about the lives of others. Uh, neither the warriors themselves nor those who chronicled the exploits seem to have attached any real degree of impropriety to killing, except under very specific circumstances. Uh, one very interesting case is the uh, uh, a warrior by the name of Obusama Saburo, uh, the protagonist of an uh, early Kamakura period picture scroll. This is the, uh, uh, that's a scene from it here, uh, the bottom slide. Uh, he's said, among other things, to have kept a fresh supply of human heads hanging on the fence that surrounded his house as a warning to thieves and other potential trespassers. He's also supposed to have had a nasty habit of abducting beggars and travelers who passed by his gate, which you see him doing here. Uh, and then he used them as targets for what the text calls chasing archery games presumably with blunt arrows, but they don't really specify uh, what's actually going on here. Uh, another real interesting story, and probably one of the most shocking and colorful anecdotes from the literature relates, uh, or at least as relates to this question, is, is a story about the uh, illustrious warrior Titus Adamori. He's a very famous warrior. He's, he's the one that, that uh, tracked down Taita Masakado, uh, one of uh, the uh, uh, protagonist in, in a major warrior rebellion in 940. Um, anyway, the account talks about uh, how an aging uh, uh, Sadamori was suffering from uh, the after effects of an old arrow wound. Uh, and he's informed by a renowned physician that he summons from the capital that his best hope is a medicine made from a dried male fetus. Um, well, Sadamori, when he learns about this, rem remembers that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, and so he calls his son-in-law, si or son rather, Simon in, and says, he'll get me the fetus. Uh, Simon is, is, of course, uh, rather horrified, uh, goes to the, to the doctor who then says, yeah, okay, look, uh, you can't do that. You can't use a blood relative as, as medicine. Uh, it's almost an exact quote, in fact. A blood relative cannot become medicine. Um, Sadamori then orders a survey of the rest of his household, which turns up a kitchen maid who happens to be six months pregnant. Uh, unfortunately, the text reports to us, when, and this is a quote, when they opened up her belly and looked, it was a female fetus, and so they threw it away. However, another was found elsewhere, and the governor survived. Um, the story doesn't end there, though. I want to come back to that point. Remember that quote, because I want to come back to it. Sadamori uh, becomes concerned at this point that his reputation might suffer. What happens when the doctor gets back to Kyoto and tells everybody there that, that uh, old Sadamori is not so tough? He was debilitated by an old arrow wound and had to call in help. So he orders Simon, the son, to kill the physician. 
Well, Simon, fortunately for the doctor, has not forgotten the doctor's help in, 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 uh, uh, in rescuing his, his wife. And so he goes instead to the doctor and instructs him to dismount from his horse when he crosses a certain mountain pass and let his bodyguard, his escort, ride instead. So the doctor doesn't ask questions. He just does as he's told. And sure enough, as they cross the mountain, a bandit appears, shoots down the man on the horse, and rides off. Uh, Simon then, who's obviously the bandit, writes back to report to his father that, yes, I shot him. We're, we're all taken care of here. Uh, unfortunately, the officer who was guarding him escaped, but that's no big deal. And uh, uh, later, of course, Sadamoni discovers the doctor is, in fact, alive. Uh, and Simon says, well, you know, it's a natural mistake. What am I going to do about it? How was I supposed to know the doctor would be on foot and, and he'd have the, the, the servant riding? So, and and Sadamoni basically agrees. The text then concludes with the statement, and it's, again, a wonderful line, that Sadamoni thought to open the belly of his pregnant daughter-in-law to take out the fetus shows his cruel and shameless heart. Well, the casual disregard for life here is absolutely striking. I mean, Sadamori here blithely orders the uh, the death of, first of all, his daughter-in-law, and then two innocent house servants, and then the physician who saved his life. Uh, Simon, for his part, is upset over the prospect of losing his wife and child, and out of gratitude, uh, you know, endeavors to save the doctor, but in doing so, he very blithely and casually kills an innocent bodyguard. Uh, very interesting stuff. But... One of the things that's really important in this, as as shocking and brutal as this kind of behavior appears, it's very important to keep it in context, Uh, both the context of the times and also the context of presentation. Uh, The uh, Obusama Sabado account that I just talked about is not in any real way censorious of uh, Sabado's behavior. It focuses instead, the the, the primary purposes of the text, in fact, is to draw a contrast between Sabado, the the rough and and tumble uh, country warrior, versus his elder brother, uh, Jido, uh, who's a warrior but uh, completely enthralled with warrior cul- or with, with courtier culture and, and becomes citified. In fact, Jido, toward the end of the story, is eventually ambushed and killed by bandits who earlier had been so awed by Sabado's uh, reputation that they let him ride by his, their, their stronghold completely unmolested. Um, the Salamori story also suggests a very situational ethics here about killing. Uh, the text in that last line condemns the, you know, the cruel and shameless manner in which Sadamori was prepared to kill his own daughter-in-law uh, and his unborn grandchild, but it says absolutely nothing about his unconcerned and, as it turns out, completely pointless uh, murder of the kitchen maid. It doesn't offer any sympathy at all for the unfortunate and unidentified uh, servant that he actually did find to provide the, uh, the fetus. Uh, um, clearly, the, narrati- the narrator here and the audience were not any less callous about this killing than Sadamori himself. And it's important to remember, again, the audience here is courtiers, not warriors. This is not uh, a text about warriors writing for each other. This is the way uh, courtiers pictured warriors, but they're clearly not upset about what Sadamori is doing either. Um, I think you know, my, my take on this is that the casual disregard for lives and property that you, and also bystanders that you see uh, in, uh, um, in samurai behavior during this early period comes mainly out of a sense of detachment and professionalism, uh, pragmatism, first and foremost, not really from savagery or cruelty. Uh, what you see here is a single-minded focus on the ends of actions uh, and very little attention paid to the moral character of means. This simply doesn't become a, a, a point of consideration for samurai. Uh, and this, in turn, was at least in part uh, a consequence of the purpose of warfare during this early period. Uh, military tactics and ethics of the samurai involved in, evolved rather in an age 
in which uh, military force was employed primarily either in the pursuit of criminals or in the pursuit of uh, people who were by definition criminals or in the pursuit of what was by definition criminal activity. Uh, under those conditions and in that framework, non-combatants either become just accessories to the criminal activity or simply uh, collateral damage, to use that wonderful term the, the modern military likes to throw around. Um, warrior willingness to the kill in the spirit also seems to uh, stem at least in part from their own willingness to die. There's a wonderful anecdote about a warrior, another very famous warrior by the name of Minamoto Yorinobu, uh, concerning a thief who'd taken a small child as hostage. Yorinobu, uh, in the story, admonishes the child's father, who happens to be the son of, of Yorinobu's wet nurse, so obviously somebody very close to him, and Yorinobu would have been very close to, emotionally to the child. Uh, he yells at him for losing his composure over the matter and says, Is this a thing to cry about? You think you must have, you must think you have taken on a devil or a deity or some such thing. To cry like a child is a foolish thing. Only one small child. Let him be stabbed to death. With this sort of heart does a warrior stand. To think of yourself, to think of wife and children, is to abandon all that is proper to a warrior in his honor. To speak of fearing nothing is to speak of thinking not of oneself, of thinking not of wife and child. Um, on the other hand, Warriors are never portrayed as callous uh, or completely uh, uh, emotion-free robots either uh, in the sources. There's plenty of evidence here in these same anecdotes that they were uh, they also valued compassion, particularly as a quality befitting a warrior leader. The anecdote that I just cited here about Yorinobu and the, and the thief, for example, ends with Yorinobu uh, talking the thief into surrendering rather than killing him. Uh, and uh, when the, uh, the thief then complies... Uh, Yoritomo pardons him. He not only lets him go, he outfits him with a horse and a saddle and bow and arrows and 10 days food supply and says, just don't come back here, uh, showing that, 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 that I can be big about this. There's a very similar story about uh, a warrior, Fujiwari Yasumasa, confronting a bandit who accosts him on the road. He does the same thing. He ends up uh, uh, basically intimidating him into surrender and then supplies him and sends him off and says, never come back. Interestingly, there are further stories about that particular bandit going out and, and doing more raping and pillaging and murdering, uh, maybe uh, leading you to wonder if maybe Yasumasa shouldn't have been quite so generous. Uh, there's a great story that I'm going to skip because I'm kind of running out of time here. We can come back to it if you're interested, about uh, one of Yasumasa's retainers in a deer hunt, and, and it's a neat reincarnation story. Uh, that, that says a lot about uh, warrior attitudes toward compassion. Basically, uh, warriors found themselves perfectly happy to be compassionate and even very emotional about family ties and, and innocent lives when it didn't get in the way of the mission. Uh, nevertheless, when, when there were conflicts between emotionally and rationally inspired courses of action presented, pragmatism always prevails in any of these stories. In fact, uh, these early literary de depictions, particularly of warrior uh, behavior, go out of their way to demonstrate that important decisions were always buttressed by rational considerations. Uh, pragmatism and detached professional approaches to your calling seem to have been the, uh, the absolutely bedrock features of warrior personality and the things that most clearly define professional warriors. Warriors always are portrayed to these sources as unruffled, excuse me, realistic men with extremely powerful sources of will, or forces of will. So what are we left with here? Well, I think basically the answer to Professor Parker's final question here depends uh, largely on whether we see the glass, you know, as the proverbial half-full, half-empty thing. Um, it seems difficult to make a compelling case that uh, samurai, at least in the first 400 years of their, their existence, were particularly bloodthirsty. 
by the same token, one could also argue that the cold-blooded calculating indifference that they uh, uh, did display toward killing marks them as something perhaps worse than, than, than bloodthirsty. So uh, before I turn this over to questions, just one final, whoops, we lose it. Lost one with slide here. That's interesting. Oh, well, I'll leave it at that. Um. We'll take about 10 minutes for questions. Anyone who has to go for half past, just sidle out. Huh? Yeah, in 1996, uh, Madeline Albright was on 60 Minutes, and the interviewer said, we've heard that, that 500,000 children in Iraq have died uh, because of the sanctions. Do you think it's been worth it? That's interesting. Yeah, I would say it does. I mean, well, what else would you explain that as? I mean, it's a kind of professional detachment. Yeah, the uh, the mission the ends justifies the means. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's obviously a reflection of a, of a kind of ends justifies the means sort of thinking, which is what I'm attributing to Samurai. And, you know, Samurai don't really even answer the question, which is one of the things, the points that, that I keep trying to make, that, that uh, you know, talking about fair versus unfair <coughs> tactics and things like that in the context of, of Samurai warfare doesn't make any sense because Samurai didn't think in those terms. You know, the key is, is winning and, and, and or losing and, and nothing else. Uh, uh-huh. My question actually has to do with terminology. The major paradigm shift you described was from this notion of public warfare to private. And is that, are those terms actually something you find in the sources? Because it confused me, because by what you were talking about in that movement between the 9th and 12th centuries, mm-hmm. you have a tax system, a bureaucratic system that's being taken over by families. So presumably, much warfare, whether it's legit or not, would be between families with distinctly private interests, even under this notion of a public sphere. So yeah. it's better to think of it in terms of Legitimate warfare or imperially sanctioned warfare, rather than just private public language. Well, the the, uh, the terms that the, the the state uses are public public and private warfare. This is what you see in the sources. And again, you know, what you need to be thinking of is not so much a transition from public to private warfare as a blurring of, of what constitutes you know the line between those two things. And this is true of, of government overall. Um, the uh, uh, the kind of fighting that I'm talking about here is not really between the great families in the court that are that. Uh, uh, are driving this initial blurring of, of lines between public and private governance. Um, the, uh, the, there is some use of that. They're using war, uh, recruiting warrior followers and using them as bodyguards. They're using them to intimidate political opponents, but there's no real overt fighting going on or very little occasional, an occasional assassination and such. Um, that's fairly common, but uh, not you know, one, uh, one courtier house calling together its troops and running and, and, and fighting in the street with the troops of another courtier house. What you do see, though, are warriors who are ostensibly servants. This is, I mean, it would be the equivalent, I guess, in modern terms of, you know, the sort of thing you see in, in uh, third world countries where colonels take their uh, uh, regiments off and, and take over the country with it, uh, and people follow them. You're finding not the, uh, the colonels and the political leaders who are kind of privatizing a, a, a public military unit, but rather the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains saying, you know, uh, you really piss me off, and I'm going to come in and, and burn down your barracks. Uh, and and uh, um, this is the sort of thing that they're describing as private warfare, and, and, and this is totally 
off, uh, illegal and, and uh, it must stop. And in the early days, they're able to, uh, what I mean by the early days, the first four or 500 years of samurai history, the, the, the court and the, and the first shogun is actually able to enforce this pretty well. They're able to, to, to say, no, you can't do that. This is illegal and we're going to sanction you for it. And they're always able to find someone who's willing to carry that badge and say, yeah, okay, uh, you know, I, there's, a, there's a reward in it for me if I wear the badge and, and, and put down uh, the, uh, uh, you know, round up the people involved in this private fighting rather than, than joining them. Uh, but they, the, the court, the central authority in general, gradually loses that ability as you move into the, the, the 13th and 14th centuries. Can I just quick follow-up? Uh-huh. So that period from the 9th to the 12th, one thing I didn't understand is when you described the change in the tax structure, you said that everybody wins essentially. But I'm just wondering, the creation of these middlemen, these provincials out of the countryside, how is it that the imperial court is still winning? Because they're getting their taxes. Uh, They're still getting the... uh, Yeah, it's it's a very complex system, and... and, uh, I went through it pretty quickly, but uh, what you get is, is a landholding system that stays very tightly tied to the center. You've got it becomes a multi-tiered system, some, partly private, partly a, a public. You have private estates that are that are held nominally, actually more than nominally. They, they, they're registered in the name of, of either a, 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 an important court figure or an important uh, important court religious institution, and then they're managed by local officials. Who have certain rights and privileges over them, and then and you're sharing the revenue, so it flows upward. The the authority to hold land and to manage land comes flows down from the center. The revenues flow back upwards, either as rents or as taxes, and basically everybody in the system wins. The uh, the uh, whether you're talking about the state putting setting tax quotas or is uh, state holders. Uh, setting uh, rent quotas. They're simply saying, this is what I want, this is what you're supposed to send me, and the people below them collect that plus a little more, and they, they don't usually collect it themselves. You know, they're delegating downward. So they, everybody wins means everybody involved in, in governing and, and managing wins. Of course, the, the, the losers are the peasants themselves. But, but in that situation, it doesn't set the stage for eliminating any way in terms of power. Well, it does in the sense that, that you're creating a frustration, which you're clearly uh, seeing building up. And, and it, what's interesting to me is that, that you don't see the uh, uh, re- any uh, you know we, we've, we've tried to read for, for uh, you know decades since Ameri- you know Westerners have been involved in Japanese history we're talking about a century or so, and Japanese historians for that for centuries before that have tried to see in the build up you know the late 1100s a build up to this and a gradually smoldering well of course you know things were falling apart in the countryside and, and warrior takeover was a matter of waking up one day and saying we're running things. You know, why are we taking orders from these idiots? We're in charge out here. It's clearly not the case. You know, you do not see any any uh, any smoldering buildup to this, except very much under control. And then it suddenly just explodes uh, in 1180. But clearly, that happened because you're getting a, a gradual resentment of this very rigid system. There are people standing around saying, "Wait a minute! You know, I'm the one that makes sure the fields get planted. I'm the one that collects the taxes. I'm the one that protects this land. The only thing I'm getting from the state." is a license that says this land belongs to me. And the only thing, which, of course, is what is necessary to keep me from having to uh, be in the saddle all day long defending the boundaries of, of my estate from, from neighbors who want to take it away from me. We've got a rule of law that says that, no, this, I, have, I have a title to the land, but do I really need that? This is just not quite fair. Why am I doing all the work and sending most of the profits up to, to, to the capital? And the, the people who feel that most keenly are the ones that sign on with Yoritomo when he stands up and says, I'll give you the same writ and I'll give you a better deal. When does adult adoption start? How does that fit into this? That's been going on, uh, as far as I know, all the way from the very beginnings of Japanese history, uh, within the imperial court and, and, and courthouses and things. Um, 
I don't know a lot about real specifics of, of you know, details on, on how this works in the countryside, but it's, it's one of the complicating factors. One of the reasons that the Genpei War has been misunderstood for so long is because you do have people running, you know, this is described as this countrywide uh, conflict between two big clans, the Taira and the Minamoto, and, and there are minions out in, in the countryside. The fact of the matter is if you look at the rosters of the two armies, there are Taira on the Minamoto side, there are Minamoto on the Taira side. There's no connection whatsoever. The two sides are strictly a matter of, of as I said, conservatives versus uh, reactionaries, uh, or, 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 or radicals, rather. Um, the, uh, uh, it's, it's a political decision. But what has camouflaged that for so long is that the relationship between these, uh, you know, all these, these families out there that call themselves Minamoto or Taita, and the Minamoto and Taita families in the capital is very unclear because of things like adoption. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the Minamoto and Taita families in the, in the provinces, some of them are descendants of, direct descendants of Minamoto and Taita court families. Others are uh, locals who simply took the name. Some of them are uh, sons-in-law who were adopted uh, and decided to take their father-in-law's name because it's more prestigious and things like that. So it very much complicates the situation. But it had been around pretty much forever. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in the context of the uh, disintegration of the central Japanese state, would you characterize the samurai's role fundamentally as revolutionary in the sense that they're fighting and they're dissatisfied with the system? Or reactionary, and they're fighting over definitions of the traditional imperial politics. Uh, yeah, probably a little of both. Um, the uh, um, I don't think you could. You, what you've got going on here is a conscious revolution. You know, uh, I mean, the uh, the initial wave here is certainly is exactly that. You know, Yoritomo stands up and says, "Be on my side." Well, why? Well, because I thought of it. And what do I get from you? You get the same license you get from the court, but I'm a warrior. I live out here in the provinces. I, we understand each other. I'll, I'll give you a better deal. And there you, you clearly are getting people who are overtly rebelling against the system. Um, as that settles down, Yoritomo becomes a sort of, uh, he's sort of the, the David Horowitz of his generation. You know, he starts out as, as an, an ultra-radical and becomes an ultra-right-wing activist by, the, by late in his career. Realizes that, that uh, no, you know, actually the only reason you know, there's that big question of why you. Uh, the uh, Yoritomo stands up and says, I can give you the license. The obvious question is, well, why do I need a license from you? Why can't I give myself the license? Uh, and the, the real answer is, well, because I'm somewhat different from you. And what makes me different? Well, because of my pedigree and my connections at the court. So he's, he, what he's doing is he's rebelling against court authority. But the, the key element that makes that possible is his own, his own position in that. You know, he needs the framework of the court to hold on to his position. He realizes that. He's very, seems to be very smart about that, realizes it very early on, and begins to find a way to, to, to negotiate his, what's essentially a kind of independent country that he's sort of ripped off for himself in the East back into the imperial court fold. Uh, at that point then, you know, as, as the, the fighting ends and Yoritomo gets control of the situation and stabilizes things, uh, then the next wave of samurai advancement, I think, is very much uh, not a, a conscious rebellion against the system so much as it, it's a kind of uh, quiet, what can I get away with sort of thing. Uh, this just doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, it, it's petty theft, really, a little at a time. And it's the, 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 uh, the flow chart I put up there I use for, I do this as an undergraduate lecture. It's actually nicely animated. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really a system of, of you've got a contract that says that, that as a, the manager of such and such an estate, you're supposed to be delivering such and such an amount of rents to the, to the proprietor. And you do things, and you've got certain rights to collect uh, 
uh, you know, wood from these fields or forests and whatever. You know, the, 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 you've got a contract that res- uh, spells out your rights and responsibilities uh, to, the, to the estate. Well, you begin to violate that. You don't send up all the taxes and see what happens, or you start collecting. Uh, Harvesting from areas you're not supposed to harvest from, collecting fish from ponds you're not supposed to fish out of, or whatever. Um, there are two responses. You know, the estate proprietor can simply ignore it, which they do a lot because it, it starts small. Um, you know, so we sent up 50 bucks instead of the, the, the 55 I was supposed to get. It's no big deal. It's not worth the, the complaint. Uh, or you file a complaint. What usually happens in the case when, when a lawsuit is filed is that that uh, uh, potentially. You can find for the plaintiff, and, and then the worst that happens is, is, you, is you go right back to the status quo ante. Uh, they never, uh, for various reasons, uh, really punish warriors for, for this sort of thing. So the worst that happens to you is, is you, you start over. It's sort of like that old kids game of the Captain May I. You know, when you get caught sneaking, you have to go back to, to, the, to the starting line, but it's not like you get kicked out of the game. Uh, you, you just start all over again. Uh, other times you might find in, 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 uh, on behalf of the defendant and then you got away with it completely. More often than not, you come up with some kind of compromise. And then as soon as, as the, the proprietor's not looking again, you do it again. You've now said, okay, well, he says it's supposed to be 50. You say it's 55. Let's make it 52 from now on. And you get a document that says from now on the contract says 52. And you just try it again. And you gradually you do that enough, and eventually you've, you've completely destroyed authority. But it's not, I, I wouldn't call that radicalism or a, a willful rebellion. I think it really is very much petty theft and, and a kind of, of, of a clear respect for the system, but maybe, I, you know, they're not questioning the system until pretty late. And that sense the system is still there remains long after there is a system. You know, you move into the Gekoku Jo, Jakuniku Kyoshoku era of the late 16th century or mid 16th century, and they're still referencing this is a legal war, that's an illegal war, and, and uh, you know I have the right to, to to do this versus you don't have the right to do this. And they still are interested in collecting these court titles that that, uh, uh, that say that well I'm the governor of this province, uh, appointed because I demanded it, not because uh, anybody actually put me in power, but they still want those titles. So warriors are never completely rejecting uh, the, the the court. phrase, you know, what, what the, the sort of things you're talking about is sort of creative reactionaryism and, uh, and creative nostalgia that goes on in, in the, uh, it's very much within the sense of uh, uh, the rubric of invented traditions um, as you move into the, the, uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The uh, uh, imperial military, I mean, you've, well, you've got a couple of steps here. You know, the, the, where I, I, I was basically talking about early medieval developments, but the, uh, uh, during the early modern period, the Tokugawa regime, you've got the warians. So samurai are not fighting. And this results in, in a complete transformation of the warrior, uh, of what it is to be a samurai. For one thing, it's for the first time in their history, being a samurai is a matter of birth. They're a legally defined 
class by defined by by birth, not by not just an occupational group. Um, the medieval period is characterized by fluidity of of, of, of uh, uh, social status and, and occupation. Um, the uh, other thing that's happening, of course, again, is is that that samurai are not fighting, and they're not they're also pulled off the land and, and they become not a, they move from being a, a, a landed feudal aristocracy of, of sorts. I, that word feudal is always tricky, but uh, use it with quotes. Uh, the uh, uh, to being a, a basically an urban salaried or stipended class. And again, they're not fighting. They've become a class of bureaucrats descended from warriors rather than, than warriors. Now, they maintain a, a great deal of two things. One is, is attempts by the government and warriors themselves to say, we can't let this happen. It shouldn't, it is, and, and pretend that it isn't happening. We're not bureaucrats descended from warriors. We're, in fact, mighty warriors. Uh, and the only difference between me and, and my ancestor five generations ago is just casual circumstances. I'm all set to charge out on the battlefield. The truth of the matter is that they're completely different. Um, and um, the other thing going on is, is a lot of angst from what I guess, for lack of a better term for it, you call samurai pundits, who are saying, okay, well, if we're not actually fighting, what justifies our position, this privileged position at the top of, of society? Uh, I mean, it's easy to explain that if, you know, well, yeah, I deserve all these special privileges and I deserve to, to, to be paid a stipend just to exist because periodically I'm asked to grab my sword, run out of the battlefield, and maybe get myself killed. Uh, so in the meantime, in between, I deserve to, to live well and such. But what justifies maintaining, when it, as, as you move into the, the mid-1600s, and it's been 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years since anybody has actually picked up a, a sword and actually been asked to put your life on the line, what justifies then continuing to receive these stipends? And so this is where this whole notion of Bushido comes from. There are a million kinds of Bushido out there. There's many ideas about what real warrior values should be as there are writers about them. Uh, there is no such thing as, as Bushido as a uniform code of anything. Well, as you move in then to the, to the 19th century under the new regime, you've got all of that as background, and then you've got the imperial army trying to create a, 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 you know, an ethic for itself, and you've got the new government also trying to create an, a, 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 you know, to suddenly and artificially manufacture a sort of nationalism and patriotism. And they do a lot of this by relying on samurai Values and, and a kind of, uh, in, a, in, in crudest form, we're all really samurai. And they, they sort of try to samuraize uh, the, rest, the other classes. Um, and particularly the Imperial Army, though, to a slightly lesser extent, the Imperial Navy. The, the, the Imperial Navy tends to be uh, more westward looking, uh, mostly because all the officers are trained in, in the, the U.S. or, or in uh, uh, England. But um, the Imperial Army tends to be, uh, become, and particularly as you move into the 20th century, becomes more and more reactionary in this fashion. But they're doing all sorts of really interesting things that are, are absolutely invented tradition. Uh, the uh, uh, most of the, the the big tenets about this is warrior honor, this is real warrior behavior, and these and these very bizarre reactionary elements and, and the, the atrocities that you see in World War II and such, uh, to the extent that they have anything to do with or that they're with what are supposed to be samurai values, these are manufactured samurai values. It's not the way samurai ever actually behaved. Um, it's a uh, you know even things like the uh, uh, one of the more interesting things that's coming out with in terms of, of recently. Uh, in terms of, of late medieval warfare, we're finding that there's very little project or hand-to-hand uh, uh, -hand fighting. This is always our image that they would, uh, you know, you shoot at each other with bows and arrows and later guns for a while, but then the real fighting takes place when, when uh, foot infantry 
clashes with, with spears and swords. We're finding now, if you look at casualty reports, they're not doing that at all. The, the guns, in fact, uh, really didn't change uh, warfare in Japan very much. They, they replaced bows, but the casualty reports for missile weapons stay consistent. They're just now they're, they're gunshot wounds instead of, of, of arrow wounds. Um, what's happening is that, the, the, and very few casualties, actually, very few deaths, uh, you know, 5 6%, which is actually rather astounding when you think about it. What you're basically doing is, is shooting at each other from across the field until one side breaks and runs, and then you send in the spearmen to sort of, of chase the remnants off the field and, and mop up anybody you can. Um, well, as you move into the 19th century, when the, when the new regime is trying to create and manufacture a military tradition and, and trying to also manufacture a kind of, of uh, uh, you know, Japanese pride, that we're, you know, well, clearly we're way behind these Western powers who are knocking at the door and forcing their way in, but what do we have going for us? They invent this tradition of, well, we can't compete with Western guns and such. They've got so much more experience with that. We have to learn their gunnery tactics. But after all, you know, we have this great tradition of hand-to-hand -hand fighting. It never existed, but they're manufacturing it absolutely out of whole cloth in, in the late 19th century and, and, and educating this officer corps that this is the way samurai fought. And, and so then and this is why kendo is so popular with the Imperial Army and such, you know, the, and, and all the bayonet training. It's, it's seen by some subgroups here as, as an answer that, you know, we can fight this way. We can fight hand-to-hand. -hand. We can't, we might not necessarily be able to outgun the uh, Western armies, but we can fight this way. Uh, but it's also seen as a kind of apology. Well, we're learning a new way of fighting, but we've got our own proud tradition rather than, well, actually what we are is 400 years behind everybody else in the world in, in, in even our own traditions of fighting. We just let it all lapse because we're not developing fighting since there are no wars going on. Uh -huh. Can I grab one more? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm coming at this from the perspective of being a, a Western medievalist. And you, know, you haven't, you haven't, and I'm curious about the last part of your talk, because it seems to rely a lot on folk tales and literature and these sorts of popular images. And it's only in the past 20 years or so that we in the West have come to realize how much of Sir Lancelot and so on was just utter garbage that was mm -hmm. invented uh, purely out of this, this perhaps unconscious attempt at self-fashioning and valorization of this class and so on. So when you end with the glasses half empty, half full, and you're, you're ending with this notion that it's pragmatic, it's, it's not necessarily a lust for violence or self-interest in self self and so on. How much of that, if you're reading it against the grain, or if you have alternative literary sources to look at, can you realize, okay, this is an image that's been projected? Yeah, that's always the problem. Because, you know, we uh, for one thing, we the... the, uh, the the more objective types of sources that historians like to use for, for things like this simply don't work. You know, things like uh, public documents and things are not very useful when you're trying to reconstruct battle and, and military uh, ethics and such because they just don't talk about it, except in, in, in the very broadest terms. You know, there was a battle, but they don't talk about what happened or how, how the fighting worked. Um, there are a couple of tiers to this. You know, as I, I sort of alluded to this in the talk, but the, the standard accounts from which we've taken our pictures of, of, of warfare during this early period uh, are a series of late medieval uh, war tales that uh, were originally oral folk tales. And uh, they are written down you know, 100 years or so after the fact. And the assumption had always been that, yeah, but what happens is that, that you make, you know, you start from a, a written text or from or fairly close to the to the to the fact with, with a fairly factual account. They're incredibly detailed. You know, they describe colors of armor and, and those sorts of things. So clearly, this was this was all facts that have been memorized and passed down and memorized and passed down. Uh, in the 60s, literary scholars began looking at these as part of, of you know, complex people as well, and, and uh, the same sort of thing you're seeing in Europe, and, and they're deconstructing 
the way that, that oral folktales singers work. They, it's not a matter of memorizing an account and repeating it. It's a matter of recreating it every time you, you do, and they use formulae for this. Uh, and a lot of the features, the, the details that impressed us with, uh, the, 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 as adding authenticity, it's the same thing you're seeing in Europe, you know, are part of these formulae, the dressing of the hero, the naming of the names and things. That, that so. And as you started looking at earlier variant written texts that were harder to get at, we started seeing that some of the, most of the, the famous episodes, like the, the Atsumori episode, for example, that I, that I cited, don't even appear in the earliest written versions of this. They, you know, they're clearly manufactured. So uh, the, the, this gentlemanly uh, image of battle that we've always that, that shows up in the textbooks is, is manufactured out of the most unreliable sources. On the other hand, you know, I mean, ideally you'd like to get completely away from literature and go to, to reliable stuff. Unfortunately, you really can't. So the best you can do is go back to sources that are written down relatively close to the time, uh, and without the, 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 this intervening. Uh, layer of, 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 of oral folklore uh, distortion of the text. So you're looking at things like, there's a text called Konjaku Monogatari in there. There's several other, a whole genre of Japanese literature called Setsuwa that are, are sort of, of uh, edifying tales. That's where a lot of these stories come out of. You do have one good text called the Azma Kagami, which is the, the Kamakura regime's official history of itself that actually is written by warriors. These are all, of course, written for didactic purposes and such, but at least they give you know, things like the, the Setsuwa you know, you can't take them completely seriously, but they do get you uh, at least a contemporaneous image of warrior behavior, which is better than than a 300-year-after-the-fact image of warrior behavior. I mean, it's kind of like using Rambo to, to, uh, to get an idea of what people in, in the, uh, the late 70s thought about uh, about the Vietnam War. It's certainly not an accurate reflection of the war, but it does it, it is a good reflection at least of, of what people in the late 70s thought that the Vietnam was like, as opposed to... What's that? Yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, we have to um, change the room around and uh, uh, get ready for the seminar. Obviously, you're all still here. You obviously enjoyed the talk as much as I did. Uh, uh, many, many thanks to Carl Friday. Let me just remind you that next week, uh, the 20th of April, uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn from uh, uh, Clark University will talk about male bonding and shame culture, Hitler's soldiers. But for now, let us all.